You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. All right, listeners, I'm so excited for you to hear from this next guest. He's one of my personal heroes, someone who I look to to remind me of what American democracy stands for, to explain the law, and essentially to be a badass activist. Today, I'm interviewing Neil Katyal. He's the former acting solicitor general of the United States. He focuses on appellate and complex litigation. Neil currently runs one of the largest Supreme Court practices in the world at an international law firm where he happens to occupy the role formerly held by now Chief Justice John Roberts of the Supreme Court. He has extensive experience in constitutional law and criminal law. He's orally argued 40 cases before the Supreme Court of the United States, 37 of which have been in the last decade. And at the age of 49, he has already argued more Supreme Court cases in U.S. history than any other minority attorney, breaking the red of esteemed Thurgood Marshall. Neil is a badass. The list of awards that he has won and accolades he has earned is honestly too long for me to read to you. But... Among all of those honors, he's been named as one of the 40 most influential lawyers of the last decade nationwide by the National Law Journal, and he happened to play himself on an episode of House of Cards. Yeah, he's a badass. And his book, Impeach, The Case Against Donald Trump, is an incredible, quick read. It's 150 pages. You can do it in an afternoon. It'll explain what impeachment is, what the history of it is, how it works in the foundation of United States democracy as a check on power, and why it's relevant to this president. It's an incredible, incredible resource. I hope that you read it, and I hope that you really enjoy this interview. He's going to answer a lot of questions and pull me back from the ledge for sure. Enjoy. I'm so excited to be doing this with you today uh, on a very strange day in the history of American democracy. It is it is Friday, January 31st, when we're recording this. Um, at the moment, the vote 
as to whether or not to allow witnesses in the impeachment case of Donald Trump is happening. Uh, so this is pretty weird. It is weird. And I mean, let me first say it's just a real privilege to be with you. Um, I met you back in June and uh, I'm a big fan. And so it's a real delight with what you've been doing. Um, and yeah, it is a weird day. In fact, literally, as you were just saying that, uh, about a minute ago, I got a flash on my screen that the vote on the Senate witnesses failed 51 to 49. So it's, um, it is a weird time to be doing this. It's unbelievable to me. So we're we're not in a trial. We're officially in a cover-up. Yes, exactly. I mean, every trial, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I've been around a lot of trials, and I've certainly never seen a trial without witnesses. I don't think anyone in America has. I think people in the Soviet Union had, but um, uh, but not in America. And, um, wow. you know, what makes it even more striking, Sophia, is that we're having—they just voted down witnesses when— some of the witnesses, like John Bolton, the president's national security advisor, have come forward and said, I really want to testify. And indeed, even today, just yes. a couple hours ago, it was really, it was revealed that Bolton's book says the president ordered him to try and cut the aid off from Ukraine and pressure Ukraine to get dirt on the Democrats. So, you know, it's not as if it's like a fishing expedition where the president is saying, oh, you just want to talk to people. You're not sure if they have relevant information. Here, John Bolton is saying, look, I've got this really important information. It, make, it shows the president is guilty. And the Senate is basically adopting a kind of see no evil, hear no evil um, policy. And, you know, John Bolton's not just some ordinary guy. He's the national security advisor to the president. Like when I worked in two different administrations, the national security advisor is like a step under God. Like <laughs> that's how important they are. It's like the president's, you know, if it's not his number one most trusted official, it's his number two. Mm -hmm. And here you've got that guy, Trump's own guy, saying Trump is effectively guilty. Yes. Wow. Oh my God. Okay. I'm, my head is spinning because of what's happening in real time as we do this. I, I want to go back and, and give our listeners a little bit of information about you. For anyone who doesn't know you, who hasn't read your bio or your, or your book yet to understand, one of my favorite facts about you, besides the fact that you are the former acting solicitor general of the United States, which is crazy. You now run one of the largest Supreme Court practices in the world in an international firm where you occupy the role formerly held by now Chief Justice John Roberts. At the age of just 49, you've already argued more Supreme Court cases in U.S. history than any other minority attorney, which breaks Thurgood Marshall's record, which is pretty wild when you consider history. You've received the Edmund Randolph Award, which is the highest award that the United States Justice Department can award a civilian. I mean, you it goes on and on. You've argued an insane number of cases in the Supreme Court. You've had major victories defending democracy, defending the public against bad environmental practices. I mean, literally, I'm sitting here holding your bio. It's three typed out pages long. With That's because it's a big font. With, it is not. With my highlights all over it. And, and I wonder if you can kind of qualify that enormous amount of experience which you have or or are there highlights that stand out to you over the course of your career uh that can that can sort of let listeners at home who don't have the legal degree and accolades that you do in on how this all works 
Sure, sure, I'll try. I mean, look, I'm a law professor at Georgetown. That's like, um, you know, I'm a lawyer. And as a lawyer, I'm not a particularly political person. I do believe that, you know, I've been fortunate to have a great education and some resources. And I feel like my duty is to use those things for the public good. But, you know, lots of times that's for the public good that doesn't have any sort of political component at all. Mm. Um, you know, my view is justice is blind, you know, like literally Lady Justice, the statue is blindfolded. Mm. And she's blindfolded because of the idea that it doesn't matter whether you're a man or woman or, you know, rich or poor or black or white, you're supposed to get the same set of rules. And basically, that's how I've tried to live my career is to try and fight for that principle. So like my first big Supreme Court court case was Guantanamo after the horrible 9-11 attacks. And um, the president had set up this military trial system at Guantanamo just out of his own, on on the stroke of his own pen, which gave no rights to the defendants and said they could be executed and handpicked the judges and handpicked the appellate judges and said the federal courts had no business reviewing what he's doing at Guantanamo. And I'm a pretty strong national believer in national security. I was national security advisor at the Justice Department. I was known for having a very tough stance on al-Qaeda. But even still, I thought that went really way too far. And so I challenged it. I wound up actually representing Osama bin Laden's driver. And I brought that case to the Supreme Court. It was my first argument. I argued it against the Solicitor General, the government's top lawyer. It was at that point his 35th argument. Um, But I won. And when I won, and I was, I think, 35 years old, and, uh, you know, the the Guantanamo tribunals came down, but it also meant that the Geneva Conventions applied to the war on terror. So it ended waterboarding and ghost prisons around the world and stuff like that. And to me, that's like law at its best. It's just saying, look, here are some simple rules of basic decency that make us human, and Mm -hmm. here's how we are going to apply them. And so, you know, that's kind of... You know, the way I approach the law is to say, don't think about this in terms of left versus right, but just really right versus wrong. Yes. And um, uh, and unfortunately, I think that's what we've lost so much sight of. And like in my book on impeachment, you know, I start by just saying, here's the basic way to think about this. You know, just if, ask yourself if President Obama did these things, how would you feel? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a Democrat, would you vote to impeach and remove President Obama? If you're a Republican, would you vote to impeach and remove President Obama? And I firmly believe, look, I love President Obama. I have the privilege of working for it with him. But if he did this stuff in Ukraine, I would go there and I'd be a house manager against him or whatever and seek his impeachment and removal. A hundred percent believe that. And I also 100% believe every Republican would do the same thing if President Obama had done this. Absolutely. They wanted to impeach him for enacting health care. Exactly. And I think that's what we have to fight for is this idea that law is more important and it transcends um, left versus right. Mm -hmm. What before we get into what's happening right now in our in our legal landscape and and the threat to the constitution. Can I ask you a really simple question, but I, it's yeah. one that I've always been curious of, of the answer. What is it like to actually argue in front of the Supreme Court? <laughs> well, I hope you get to come and watch and you're welcome. I to would anytime. love to. All right. You got an invite anytime you'd like. So it's, um, it's, it's 
I'll say it's still scary. You know, I just argued my 41st case last week and it's still tough. Um, and, um, you know, it's only a half hour per side. So back in the like old days, it used to be like a go on for days oral argument. Like Daniel Webster used to argue for like nine days at a time or something. But now it's like, you know, it's kind of like an Indian wedding. An Indian Hindu wedding is supposed to be three days long, but my parents compressed it into a half hour. And that's basically <laughs> what we've done with Supreme Court arguments. We've compressed this long thing into a half hour where there's no room for error. It's kind of like the Olympics. And, you know, you just do, you you can't mess up even a sentence. Um, so it's really scary. You know, and there's no doubt about it. The justices I love interrupting you and asking questions. And so in that half hour argument, I'll average about 59 questions in the half hour that they're throwing at me. Whoa. So it's rapid fire. And sometimes they're also talking and asking questions over each other. So there's a kind of like a, a traffic cop role that you have to play sometimes as well. Whoa. So, but it's also really exhilarating because honestly, Sophia, it's the one branch of government that works. Like I've been watching the hearings all week and I certainly don't think the Senate is functional. Um, the presidency is, you know, to call it dysfunctional would be generous. Um, but the, but the Supreme court really does work. And, you know, however you think about them in terms of their votes, mm -hmm. these are nine really smart people who have read everything, every footnote, every case, and they're really going after you. And they're not doing it like to embarrass you. They're doing it because they know whatever decision they make is going to set law for the whole nation. And they right. want to make sure they understand all the answers to all the arguments. Wow. Um, so it's tense. Um, you know, when Justice Scalia was there, there was probably a little more of combat. And now it's a little less combative and a little more kind of friendly. Mm. Um, but, you know, I kind of enjoyed the combat too. I have to say like... You know, even as much as he loved to give me a hard time, I remember I argued a case uh, soon after he passed away, and I remember walking out of the court and I had a tear in, tear in my eye mm. because, you know, um, he was such a larger than uh, life presence on the court. Wow. Okay, I want to I want to go back because obviously we're we're speaking to you in, in this position that you occupy in your life. You breathe very rare air. Uh, in in terms of our legal system, and I'm I'm curious where where you began. I'm I'm curious about Neil as a kid. Where where did you grow up? Okay, so I grew up in Chicago. My parents came from India the year before I was born, um, wow. and, or got married the year before I was born. They were separately here uh, at times before that, um, but they met each other and had an arranged marriage in India and and moved here. In what part of and, India are they from? Uh, they're Punjabi, so northern India. Okay, and. Um, to directly connect it to my, you know, my kind of my career life, um, my dad lost his job when when I was about twelve, and lost it in some really, you know, um, I, I don't generally like to, you know, talk about, but you know, it was some really ugly discrimination stuff that happened, and he wow. couldn't get a lawyer for a long time, and filed a case pro se himself, and actually asked me to help. But I, you know, I was 12 and 13 years old. I didn't really know much about the law. I was on the debate team, so he asked me to do some research, and I was kind of annoyed. Um, and but I tried a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But then he had so much merit to his case. Uh, the federal judge did something I, I still think is incredibly rare. He read my dad's handwritten complaint, and he said, "There's enough here. I want to appoint a lawyer." Wow. And 
that lawyer went and fought for my dad. And I remember still to this day when my dad wound up resolving the case. And it wasn't like any huge amount of money or anything, but it gave him his dignity back. Yes. And that's when I learned about the power of the law. And, um, you know, as an Indian um, in America, you know, there's only one profession, which is a doctor. And I decided then basically that wasn't for me to be Mm. a doctor, that I, I liked this idea of using my voice to stand up for other people. And so... I went to college and law school, and I also loved the idea of teaching. So Mm. I started teaching at Georgetown and then taking cases like Guantanamo, first on the side, and now it's become much more of a a big-time occupation. At that age when your dad was fired, what what line of work was he in? He was a chemical engineer. Oh, wow. Okay. So you see your dad lose his job in what was apparent. Very, it was very apparent that it was a discrimination issue. Did that affect sort of your sense of security as a kid? Were you experiencing your own versions of discrimination? Because look, like 12-year-olds are mean no matter what. And, and I, I imagine that the... Darn, com- you're a good interviewer. So yes. Well, yes, but I just, I imagine that there was a compounding thing going yeah, on. And, so- and, and how did that affect your understanding of what you were on the receiving end of as a kid? Such, such a great question. So actually, when I was 12, the movie Gandhi had come out in the movie theaters. And every time I'd get on the bus, the kids would call me Gandhi and stuff like that, which actually is quite a compliment, but not when you're 12 years old. Right. And, uh, you know, and there was some bullying and stuff like that, which I just thought was the just the norm. I didn't even call it bullying or anything. I just like, that's part of life. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're right, it did affect me. And, you know, there's a direct relationship to why when I graduated from law school, I went straight to the university setting and tenure because I wanted a job I could have for the rest of my life that nobody could take away from me. Mm. And I worked so hard, so fast to get that job. Like I I wrote, you know, a dozen papers in the first couple of years and became, I think, one of the youngest professors ever tenured at Georgetown. And the reason, though, is all goes back to that question you asked. It was like a race to get the ultimate job security so that what happened to my dad wouldn't happen to me. And I've never really been actually a believer in the tenure system um, because, you know, once you get tenure as a law professor, you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, and so what, what does that it, mean? I, I, I'm, forgive my ignorance. I don't I understand what tenure means, but what does it mean that if you have it as a law professor, you can do whatever you want? Well, it just means as a university professor, it means that as long as you show up and teach your teacher classes, basically, they can't take your job away unless you're right, like you could turn into a evil crap teacher like and and you stay. Yeah. So so because of that, you know, I felt like when I got tenure, you know, I had an obligation to use it for something important. And, you know, if you ask mm-hmm. why did I do the Guantanamo case, one of the things I thought about at the time when I started to bring it, I was 31 years old when I started, and I had funded it out of my pocket. So really hard, you know, and I was a professor, so it wasn't like I, you know, had like a big salary or anything. Mm-hmm. But I did think to myself, I'm one of the few people who have, as a lawyer, who has a job that they can't take away. Mm. And with that, you know, it's the Spider-Man principle with great power comes great responsibility. I felt that way. I felt like, you know, it's not that brave for me to do this because 
I can never get fired from my job. These people in law firms, they can't go represent someone at Gitmo. They, you know, that's a much more complicated thing. And in fact, I went to 38 different law firms. No one would help me at the time. And then once we started to, you know, get further along, we started to figure out a way to make Guantanamo actually an interesting thing for lawyers and ultimately got law firms to help. But it took a while. And so that was one nice thing about the tenure system. And my dean at the time got so many letters urging Georgetown to fire me because I was siding with the terrorists and stuff like that. Wow. It's odd to me. And look, I understand. I'm sure there are people listening who have a little bit of an uneasy feeling or a like, but why those people? Like, why would you want to defend those people? The, the way that I see it, if, if I may sort of speak to my own feelings on the subject, obviously it's very confounding to think about what, and I won't say all because there were many people thrown in Gitmo for no reason, but there were people there for good reason who participated yeah. in an, an enormous and devastating attack on America, but the way I see it is if we want to be the leaders we claim to be, if we want to be the country we claim to be, if we want to set precedents for excellence, we do not treat anyone the way dictators or terrorists treat people. And that's what we were doing at Gitmo. That's so beautifully said. That's exactly right. And if you believe in principle, you don't throw them out at the throw them out the window when the going gets tough, you you live under the principles. And here, the basic principle was literally common Article 3 of the Geneva Convention said, the rights indispensable to all civilized peoples should be granted. The rights indispensable to all civilized peoples. And the Bush administration took the view that they couldn't do that. Mm. That the rights indispensable to all civilized peoples. And I just think, you know, that's ridiculous. Are we that scared? Are we that, you know, weak as a country that we can't just afford basic, decent rules like having an independent trial or having a lawyer Mm -hmm. who can research your case or things like that? I mean, of course not. So, you know, I think you're right. And sometimes, you know, it's hard. Like I try and take a death penalty case to the U.S. Supreme Court almost every year. And some of them are gruesome facts. Um, Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. They did horrible, horrible things. But there's a principle at stake. And I think it's real important to fight for that principle. And likewise, I think it's real important on the other side that there's someone on the other side of the courtroom who's making the opposite argument. And we let the adversarial system, you know, test it out. But nobody wins if one side is represented poorly Mm -hmm. and the other side is represented well, which is why, like, even in this Trump impeachment, I wanted him to have good lawyers. I wanted him great lawyers. But we also wanted to hear witnesses. (laughs) We wanted a fair (laughs) trial. Yes, you know, that'd be kind of nice. You know, know, America, our, our justice system exists on the pretense of a fair trial, not of opening arguments and then it's over. Exactly. I mean, and particularly when you're the president, the idea that because you're the president, you can hide evidence and Mm-mm. call it privileged or this or that. I mean, it's just the it's it's worse than Nixon. I mean, even Nixon never did far. anything like this. No. I mean, Nixon thought about hiding two witnesses for a little while, but then he, even he, after two weeks, backed down mm-hmm. and provided them. So this is a... Um, an unprecedented thing and a real threat to what the rule of law is all about. Well, it's a shocking miscarriage of justice. And again, I've never been to law school, but 
I do an awful lot of research and it is so apparent to me and I don't understand, honestly, I don't understand how all of America is not in the streets right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and I, I don't mean that they should be rioting, but I do think they should be protesting. Well, protesting, um, marching, you yeah. know, but but that is that is kind of our our great right. It's 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 a really weird time. I, I'm I'm curious because you know, you you get to argue a case in front of the Supreme Court because you have an incredible amount of schooling and you study and to your point you you did it at a, at a really accelerated pace and i and i imagine that when you have that fire lit in you of an experience whether personally or by proxy of oppression and you say i'm never going to let that happen to me and i'm going to make sure that doesn't happen to other people the the speed at which you went through school and and became the youngest tenured professor at, at your university is, is pretty wild. Um, every once in a while when I hear you talk about things, I'm like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess you're pretty smart. <laughs> I'm like, you're literally one of the most brilliant people I know. But, but what, how did your law career begin? Because I'm curious about the experience, you know, from early high school that we were speaking about in Chicago. What happened? Like, how, how do you go about high school? How do you decide where to go to law school? well, where to go to college and then where to go to law school. What's, what's the story there? Fill in the middle for so, me. So uh, two very formative events happened. One we've talked about, which is my dad losing his job and yeah. me starting to think about being a voice for other people. Mm-hmm. And the second thing that happened was that I joined the debate team at the age of 13 because mm. I, you know, I wasn't particularly good at sports. And my uncle said, as I was going to high school, he's like, you should try the debate team. Now I was the shyest kid imaginable. And I thought this was insane. <laughs> He might as well said, you know, join the football team. But I was like, all right, you know, I'll try it. And I tried it. And actually, it turned out that, you know, if I put the work in, I could win some rounds. And Mm. by my sophomore year, by the middle of my sophomore year, I was flying around the country on a national circuit and starting to win. Wow. And so um, I got recruited to go to Dartmouth College, which had a great team. And I loved arguing. And then... As I was thinking about going to law school, I said, because this other thing we we're talking about, about job security, I was like, I want to go to the law school, which teach, which which trains law professors so that I could go and teach and get tenure really fast. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to Yale Law School for that reason. And then from there, I really thought that I was going to teach. But one of the things you can do if you're doing very well in law school is you can clerk for a federal judge, which is like an apprenticeship for a year. And so I did that first for a judge on the Court of Appeals, who actually was the Yale Law School dean before then, a a brilliant man named Guido Calabresi, who's still a judge and kind of almost my second dad or something. Mm -hmm. He is a remarkably brilliant and humane individual. And then I clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Breyer. And when I was doing that, I was going to take a job at Georgetown. I was on the teaching market and I had done a little work for Al Gore and his lawyers called me up or excuse me, his chief of staff called me up and said, hey, we're going to nominate this guy to be deputy attorney general. Do you want to go work for him? I said, what is a deputy attorney general? This is before Rod Rosenstein and you know people knew what a deputy attorney general was. Uh-huh. They said, it's the number two person at the Justice Department. I said, huh, I don't know. I said, who is it? And they're like, a guy you never heard of. His name's Eric Holder. 
And I hadn't heard of him, as nobody really had at that time. But I met Eric, and I started working for him at the Justice Department and did national security work. And ultimately, also, even at the age of 28, um, we had the Ken Starr investigation going on. And um, I got to write the rules for the special counsel that Mueller ultimately was appointed under. Mm -hmm. So I thought really hard about, for a year and a half, about, like, how do we investigate the president? Um, and so those rules, um, you know, were something I wrote with a lot of input from a lot of different folks at the Justice Department and on the Hill. But then after that, I thought, OK, I'm finally going to go be a law professor. And that's what I started to do at the age of about 29. Wow. What is it like to be in your 20s and to be expanding the justice system's rules and regulations for a formative part of the house the country was built as, in a, in a way, being our powers to investigate the president, to to have these systems of checks and balances, you know, a little asterisk, obviously they're not working right now. But what <laughs> what, is, what is that like to really, I imagine you are analyzing, you know, the, the history of America's democracy and, and having to make estimations about what that legalese means is that crazy? Did that feel no, crazy to like you? No, it's like totally awesome and heady. And mm. I think what made it so awesome was all the things you say, which are some of the most intricate, deep questions in the law, in history, even in philosophy. They go back to ancient Greece, who mm. guards the guardians. Mm. Or if you're a fan of Dr. Seuss, it's the bees, bee watchers and watching the bee watcher watchers and stuff <laughs> like that. I mean, these are really important questions. But what made it even more awesome was that I felt like everyone was trying to do the right thing back in 1998 and 1999, because uh, the president, President Clinton, was on his second term. Mm -hmm. He was term limited. So we were kind of behind the veil of ignorance. We didn't know whether a Republican would win or a Democrat would win. Wow. And therefore, there was no incumbency advantage to a first-term president or anything like that because he was in his second term. So everyone was trying to think about what the real rules should be. Wow. Oh, and, and Ken Starr was investigating, but that investigation would be grandfathered and not touched by our rules. Right. So we're really just writing the rules for the future in the most ideal state. And I worked with tons of Republicans and tons of Democrats to just try and get it right. As it's the meant way to that be. I the, the way that I think our founders kind of imagined it to mm -hmm. be. And um, so if you ask, like, yes, it was the substance of what I was doing, but it was also the spirit in which everyone was uh, going through that task, which was really trying to solve a hard problem and take politics out of it. And that's what I, I guess I miss so much. And like, I think about, you know, the next generation and they grew up in a world in which they don't even know that that existed. Right. Um, and that's what law is ultimately at its best about. It's about that. Mm. The word that comes to mind when I hear you explain the kind of perfect storm you were in at that moment is purity. It feels pure. It feels, yeah. it feels true. And, and we have lost a lot of that. So, so much has been weaponized in ways that feel really nonsensical, you know, tangentially, the fact that we have these debates about the environment and the and and what the oversight of the EPA should be as though it's a Republican or a Democratic issue is crazy to me. Totally. I, I'm, totally. I'm, I'm like, the water is not political. 
it, it's exactly human. the water, the air. I mean, yeah. what's going on with climate? Yeah. And they, you know, the Republicans in particular politicize this so much. And you know, if you're a Republican kid growing up, and you know, your house may not be there, or it might be on fire. And the environment doesn't know politics. Yeah, it's you know we're been given this great gift of an earth, and um, yeah, I agree with you entirely. Mm. And the law is not meant to know politics either. Exactly. And and I'm curious about the the sort of space in between this really beautiful moment in history that you're referring to in in, in Clinton's second term and and where we find ourselves now. Were there people? in particular, who stand out when you look back on it, when you look back on writing those briefs? Is that the right term you, you wrote briefs yeah, on? Okay, perfect. great. Just making sure. Um, I had a moment where I was like, am I talking about this as though I know what I'm saying and I actually don't? I'll be so embarrassed. But I do. Great. Uh, <laughs> uh, when you were writing those briefs, were there people, were there experts who you really relied on were there, you know, cause for me, I, in, in my, you know, in the fantasy movie in which I have the position that you had, then I'd be like, I got to call Ruth Bader Ginsburg and ask her opinion about X. Were, were there people who now, when you look back on that really stood out as incredible guideposts and, and experts to you? Yeah, totally. And obviously, it wasn't Justice Ginsburg, because if I'm arguing before her, I can't call her for advice. Yeah, of course. Um, but that, um, See, but that's where I don't so know what I'm doing. And that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but there were so many. And so, yeah, I think like that's, you know, one of the most important things is both to seek that out when you're just starting out. But also now that I'm way past that point in time, like, it's the most important thing for me to do is to mentor other people now who are starting out that way. And, you know, like in the bar I'm in, the Supreme Court bar, if you ask yourself who argues in the Supreme Court, um, last year it was 17% women. The year before, 15%. One year before that, 12%. Wow. These are, I mean, I don't know of another profession with those kind of atrocious numbers. And, you know, I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but this is kind of the pinnacle of the profession or a pinnacle of the legal profession. And yet it's largely closed to women, almost entirely closed to minorities. I mean, you know, it took me 50 years to break Thurgood Marshall's record for the most number of minority arguments. I mean, that's great for me, but it's terrible what it says about our profession. Yeah. Um, this year, I gave one of my young associates uh, a Supreme Court argument, and he became one of the very few openly gay attorneys to have argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's not happening in uh, the legal profession or in any other profession, but you know, the legal one's the one I know. And you're absolutely right. It does go back to, hey, are you going to throw that lifeline to someone else? Because you're right, Sophia, a lot of people threw that lifeline to me and mm -hmm. made it possible to, um, for me to, you know, as a law professor without any real courtroom experience, figure out how to argue one of the most consequential cases in United States history. And then when I won that, all sorts of doors opened up, you know, after I won Guantanamo, you know, Barack Obama, when he was a senator, heard me on the radio. This is before the age of podcasts and, um, <laughs> and invited me to go to the Senate and speak with him. And that's how we got to know each other. And companies started to hire me and mm -hmm. things like that. But it all took that first win. And to take to get that first win required an incredible amount 
of support. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a law firm in Seattle, Perkins Coie, that really took me under their wing. And we did the Guantanamo case together and they helped me in so many ways. And wow. I'll never forget that. And, you know, I feel like that's my job is to now pay that forward. That's so cool. What did you talk about with President Obama when he was a senator and invited you in? What, what was that first conversation? Well, the first conversation was about Guantanamo because mm. there was pending on the Senate floor a bill to reverse a lot of the wins that we had in the Supreme Court. And we talked for three hours in his office. The first two hours were one-on-one when he asked me to just take him through everything about Gitmo, which I did. And then for the third hour, he brought in his staff and we argued it back and forth amongst each other. And at the end of the third hour, he said, okay, you got to go. I said, of course. And he said, Neil, on this side of the room, everyone's saying, don't listen to Neil. And that's like 10 of his staff. And on this side of the room, he's like, that one woman is saying, listen to Neil. Which one do you think I'm going to do? And I said, well, I don't know, Senator, we've just met, but I hope you do the right thing. But I walked out thinking, no chance. It sounds like he may want to run for president or something. (laughs) He's not going to side with terrorists at Guantanamo. And you know what, Sophia? Like two weeks later, no advance notice, but I get the word uh, on the news that he's voting against this Guantanamo thing. He had done the right thing. And that's when I knew, like, this is, I I never really been political before, but this is the kind of person I want to work for. Yes. And what I would, what I want to clarify for people listening at home is, again, it was posited by people arguing for the wrong reasons that you were either siding with victims or siding with terrorists, but that wasn't the argument. The argument was we're either going to abide by America's ideals and carry justice out blindly for all people. We're going to be better than those who would attack us or we're not. And if we stoop, then we, then we never stop. You have to set boundaries around your integrity and you don't have integrity unless you can apply it to those who you do not agree with. That's 100% right. And, you know, at the time, though, it was such a hard thing for him to do. I mean, even Mm -hmm. I, as the lawyer, was called a terrorist lover, terrorist hugger, go back to Afghanistan, you know, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, of course, you know, someone named Barack Hussein Obama is going to get that just as much or more. But he did the right thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as president, he often had hard calls. Not all of them were right. But, um they were motivated in, by the right things. He was a truly American president. And I think we have lost that. And I feel so badly for the kids who are growing up and only know a president who's craven, who wants to return America to its worst impulses yes. rather than its highest and best. You worked as the acting solicitor general under President Obama. Can you explain to listeners what that role entails and what your responsibilities are when you hold that title? Yeah, so it's the top courtroom lawyer for the government. And uh, so it means you're in charge of all the cases across the country. But the most visible part of it is uh, arguing the most important cases before the Supreme Court, sometimes in other courts as well. So like I did argue the Affordable Care Act because it was challenged by all these conservative states Mm. um, and defended that in all the courts across the country. Um, but also one, perhaps the most interesting case for me, which I knew nothing about, I mean, patents, I thought patents would be really boring, but I had the case about 
the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, which if you have in your body, will uh, you have a very high chance of an aggressive form of breast cancer. This is the gene that Angelina Jolie has now yeah. and that people know from that. People call well, it the BRCA gene. Yeah, exactly. That's kind so, of the common lexicon for it. Exactly. And so the, the problem was and that um, a company had gone and patented the gene itself. And they charged women, like my wife, many thousands of dollars just to take a blood test to see if you had the gene in your body or not. God, that's disgusting. I looked at that, and it is horrible. And um, the government had actually issued 20,000 patents just like this, not just on BRCA1 and 2, but on other genes. And I looked at it, and I sought the invalidation of all 20,000 gene patents, which basically certain people in the biotech industry wanted to run me out of government after I made that call. And they said, there's no chance you would ever win this position in court. You're taking away people's property rights. It'll lose 9-0 at the Supreme Court. Well, it turns out we won 9-0 at the Supreme Court. And the invalidation of patents on the human genome has unleashed a whole field of medicine now, uh, personalized genetic medicine and the like, which is going to have huge huge implications for society. And so mm-hmm. that's a chance in which, you know, government can really do well on something like a technical issue that may be a little hard for folks to understand. For me, it took actually a year. I went to the NIH on Monday nights and they tutored me in genetics. Wow. And I had Larry Summers tutoring me about the economics of innovation at the White House. I mean, it was wow. like the most awesome thing ever. And I'm glad, I'm really proud of that call I made. That's really incredible. One of my favorite victories of yours during that time, you had a unanimous victory against eight states across the nation who sued the nation's leading power plants for their contributions to global warming. And that rings so significant for me because I think that many of us who exist outside the realms of the legal system assume that someone is in charge making good decisions for us and Really, that's not the case. Very often, to your point about this, you know, even the patents on genes, big corporations have spent the money to screw over the American people in order to make more money for themselves. And it's so amazing to me when people take that power back and and this idea that you were able to argue that these companies actually have a responsibility to us, not just to their bottom line and and have such an immense victory in court was very exciting to me. I mean, I think one of the things the president, President Obama cared so much about was global warming. And, you know, it's obviously a huge, hard issue. And particularly when you have a Congress that was opposed to him. Mm-hmm. And so some of this had to be done by regulation. But I, I'm proud of, of what he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we need to do way more. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, when we don't have much time and, you know, the current occupant is creating even less time for us as a species. And so, you know, I do think that uh, it's like human rights. I mean, this is a human right, effectively. Yes. I mean, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about about a breathable, livable planet. Okay. I feel like we got to get to it. Let's do it. We're in the midst of impeachment. Thank you for all of the background. I, I feel lit up. I feel inspired. And now I feel like I'm about to get very scared. But I I, I wouldn't want to talk about this with anybody but you. We're, we've 
over the last week witnessed these marathon sessions in the Senate for impeachment hearings. Can you talk me through your take on what you've witnessed so far? And then we'll get into what's happening as we're speaking. I've witnessed a lack of witnesses. I've witnessed a trial that's not a trial. That's what I've seen. I've seen basically what you called at the start a cover-up. And that's what it's been. This isn't like an American system of justice. This is just a rush through to try and beat the clock because they're worried more and more bad evidence is going to come out well, against it will. <laughs> President Trump. Yeah, and it's going to. Yeah. Um, this is a question of when. And um, yeah, it's really unfortunate. There was a foreign, former foreign leader who tweeted today, oh good, I'll never get to hear, have to hear another lecture from Americans about fair trials or due process or wow. anything like that after today. Wow. And, you know, we've really taken the Constitution, taken the uh, you, you, what the United States is known for around the world in terms of a beacon of liberty and justice and set it aflame. And so I think what the Senate did is reprehensible, un-American, undemocratic, unconstitutional, unlawful. But I don't want to leave you or your listeners with only that dire side, because the truth is, I'm actually kind of optimistic after this. Really? And I'm optimistic oh God, please in a tell bunch me why. of ways. And so let me tell you some of them. So like one way you could think about it is say, well, look, the president's going to be acquitted. And so it just shows the lawlessness of our country and the Republican Party. But I'd say a few things to push back on that. One is, 70, even though we're, the country's so divided politically, mm-hmm. 75% of people think that what President Trump did was wrong. And even more want witnesses at this trial. And so that just shows me that the people, as opposed to maybe some of the yahoos in Washington, actually have it right. And then I think about the Democratic Party, because they have been told from the start, from President Trump on to their own leaders, that impeachment is a loser for them. It's going to hurt them in November. And it very well may, who knows, but they did it anyway. Because They it's did the right it because it do. was right, because mm. it was the right thing to do. And they risked things because they stood up for principle. And that to me is like what this country is all about. Even more to the point, think about those brave people who went and testified in the House, like Dr. Fiona Hill or Colonel Alexander Vindman. These are like, they don't have the resources that you and I have. They've been in the government their whole lives. And yet they're going and telling their stories, even though the president tried to gag them and forbid them from telling their stories. They told the truth Mm -hmm. because they felt like that was their duty as Mm -hmm. Americans. Think about that whistleblower who did the same thing, Yes, risking his life or her life and all the things that would follow once the report was filed. Mm -hmm. So I think about those things and I think, you know, we've got a lot of fundamentals in this country that are good. And I'm not going to let 51 or 53 people in Washington ruin my image of America. I'm going to make sure that they don't, control things again. I mean, Uh and I think we all have to, but we can get this country back to what our founders wanted it to be. That's my question for you though, because when you say 75% of Americans believe that what Trump did was wrong and look, the facts are out there. Nothing is hidden. 
It's all out in plain sight. We know that what he did makes Nixon's impeachment look like child's play. And and he's running the country the way a mob boss runs an organized crime unit. It's it's blatant. It's offensive. It's scary. And to your point, more than 75 percent of people wanted witnesses. It's up in the high 80s, I believe, the last time I checked the polling numbers. And yet the Senate didn't call witnesses. They've doubled down on holding on to power no matter what the cost is to the country. They've put party over country in a way that is so overt. And the irony is that they keep accusing the <clears throat> Congress who who called the sessions in the first place of, of being political. It's like, no, we're, we're being constitutional here. What does it mean? What do we do? Because, yes, it's what we as Americans want, but they're not listening. How, in, in your estimation, with your legal expertise, how do we make these people listen to us? Because if they're elected to represent us and they don't represent us, but they sit in Washington representing themselves, taking kickbacks from corporate lobbyists and, and really working in the interests of, of the super rich and, and those people alone, and I'm talking like, 10 billionaires and a bunch of corporations, like not people who think that for some reason the Democrats are against anyone being successful. It's like, we all like nice shit, okay? That's not it. Um, what do we do when we see this? How, how do you recommend that we act? How do we act meaningfully? How do we not lose hope? Because it feels bleak. I don't think it should feel bleak because our founders did give us one tool and it's coming up on us right now, which is the reelection. Right. And these senators are vulnerable. And you mm -hmm. know what? They're scared. Mm. They're scared. And that's why they did what they did because mm -hmm. they want Trump's support. But Trump himself is not particularly popular. He's one of the least popular presidents in American history. And I think we fight like hell mm. against him and anyone who voted for this cover-up. Mm -hmm. um, I don't care if they voted on other things that are good, but anyone who stood for this and said, oh, this is okay. It's cool for a president to go and cheat on his reelection with the help of a foreign government. Mm. Anyone who's okay with that is fundamentally unfit for government. And I hear you about the billionaires. You know, one of my cases when I was at the uh, at the Justice Department was Citizens United, which mm -hmm. is the Supreme Court case that said corporations have free speech rights. And we fought it like hell and we lost five to four. And so there's a lot of money flowing into political campaigns now that didn't exist before. Scary. But ultimately, we do have the people. We fight. And mm. I think it's incredibly important that people register to vote. I think, mm -hmm. you know, young people like the folks who are listening to this, you know, got to go out and register to vote and get other people to vote, bring their friends. I think it is so important. This election is everything because mm -hmm. if Trump wins and the others in the Senate win, then I think we could set the country back, the world's progress back, perhaps irrevocably. And so I think the stakes could not be higher. And, you know, like, let me just talk about one thing, which I care a lot about, which is a woman's right to choose. Mm. And right now that's incredibly vulnerable mm -hmm. at the Supreme Court and in lower courts, because Trump has packed the lower courts with all sorts of judges who are hell bent on trying to overturn Roe versus Wade. Mm. And it's hanging by a thread. And so there's two things that we can do. One is elect a president who's going to appoint justices like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 
But there's another thing, which is if we just elect a Senate that's democratic, we can sweep all of this away because Mm -hmm. the Senate and the House together can pass a federal law that displaces any state law restricting abortion unnecessarily. And so we can really, just on the political side, with just a couple more votes, take this issue and guarantee it for women across the country. Right. And so it's things like that which are just so important. Like if you're uh, if if you're gay and you get fired from your job mm-hmm. in 25 states, there's no protection against you. They can fire you just because of who you love. If we can just get those three votes in the Senate, everything changes. Right. And I want to point out two really important things, both in the argument of orientation that you just brought up and and on the abortion issue, people forget how much these issues are tied together. People think that abortion is just about abortion, but really what it's about is women's comprehensive health care, abortion included. One of the things that frustrates me is that nobody was talking about the fact that with the expansion of women's reproductive care under the Obama administration, abortions actually hit the lowest rate they'd ever been at in U.S. history. Because when you provide comprehensive access, even to that greater step, women don't need it because they have other protections that come along first. People don't understand that when we're talking about the rollback of abortion rights, we're also talking about the rollback of access to birth control in the first place, access to comprehensive sex ed, which actually increases when it goes away, increases the rates of teen pregnancy, which then increase the amount of kids who are struggling who need to have abortions in the first place because babies shouldn't be having babies. You know, these things are inextricably linked and people want to put their head in the sand and say, well, I don't agree with that, so I'm not going to vote for it. And my my estimation would be good people can disagree on these issues. But if you don't agree with it, then you don't do it in your personal life. But you don't destroy other women and other families options. And you don't fly in the face of medical science and proclaim that, you know, more than a woman and her doctor know about her body, her family and what she needs. And in the same way that when we talk about issues of sexual orientation and who people love and where they're employed, if if a company can fire someone for being in the LGBTQ community, they can sure as shit fire you for something that shouldn't matter either. Whether it's a disability, whether it's being a parent, whatever the issue, if we give them a window to to control our lives based on the minutia of who we are, it doesn't just affect one vertical, it affects all. So we either show up for each other, whether we agree with each other or not, or we throw everybody away, ourselves included. Sophia, I think you should um, be a lawyer. That was beautiful and much better than anything I could say. And, well, you're um, a very kind person. You know, My respect, dad still thinks it's with, weird that I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> with respect to abortion, you know, the way I think about it, the phrase I like to use is reproductive justice. Yeah. And it's not just abortion, of course. It's everything. Mm-hmm. And it's everything that Trump is trying to take away from mm-hmm. women right now. And, um, and again, I think we have to fight like hell for this. This is, this is not something that, you know, it, it, it's sad to me that we're still fighting for it now, right. you know, after so many decades. I'm curious what you think when we talk about fighting and when we talk about voting, how do you think we sort of shake people out of the stupor and remind them that you've got to vote on the bigger issues? And what goes hand in hand with that question for me is this one, 
How are you feeling about election security? Because that's where I'm very, very scared. Looking at yeah. research, I don't know if you follow Jennifer Cohn. She's an incredible writer and an expert in in our elections. And every single day she's posting information about vulnerable systems, election machines that are online when they're not supposed to be, how we're passing all these paper ballot initiatives, but they're actually barcoded so they can't be audited. And we know that the Trump campaign is soliciting help from hackers. We know that. He did it in the first election. He's doing it again. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to trust our elections in the first place? How, how, do, you, how do you remind people how to fight in that arena? Yeah, no, I'm really worried about election security. I think that's a great question. I think all we can do is, you know, turn out as many people as possible to the polls to try and eliminate mm-hmm the cheating that we expect is going to happen. We need a landslide. We need a landslide because, you know, just remember the president's lawyers just a couple days ago in the Senate said, if the president cheats uh, or does something and because he's trying to win an election, then it's okay. It's not impeachable. Yeah, They were saying if he, if he, if he, if he did anything criminal in the effort to get reelected, it was okay. Alan Dershowitz said that. Yeah. So, so, you know, it, it, it's, uh, he's, he effectively said he could cheat in the election and it's not impeachable. So of course he's going to do that. Mm. He's going to do that in all sorts of ways. And so we need, we need to be better than like, uh, just a little bit of a win. We need to, we need, as you say, a landslide. And that's where I think it's actually all about getting young people to vote. I'm not, I'm not worried if they show up at the polls who they're going to vote for? Are they going to vote on some irrelevant issue like mm. who you're going to want to have a beer with or something? No way. Everyone knows what the stakes are. They just got to turn up and vote. Mm. And if they turn up and vote, they're not going to want this man who really stands for everything that America is against. Um, but it's like getting young people to the polls in every way, shape, and form is important. Mm. You said in response to Dershowitz's argument, not only in response to it, but really you rang the alarm about what happens to us if this becomes legal precedent. And that's, I think, what people forget is that we're talking about precedent here. And once it's precedent, anybody can argue that it's fair. And and you said that you can't think of something more dangerous to our democracy uh, than to have one of the most destructive precedents to have existed in our nation's history. It would empower a president to use the full suite of his powers as commander in chief to assure reelection. And you tweeted that that's what kings do, not what presidents do. And when when we see that Trump loves dictators and despots and he loves he loves him an oligarch, where do we go with that? Yeah, no, it's terrifying. So, you know, when you go back to the Philadelphia Convention and there's a chapter in my book about it and you ask, like, what were the founders thinking? Well, the first two months they were trying to debate the great powers of government, like how much should be in the president versus Congress. They ultimately settled down a lot for the president. They wanted a strong commander in chief, as Hamilton Mm -hmm. says, a a president who has secrecy and dispatch and a whole awesome array of powers Mm -hmm. because they knew the president could act quickly. Um, and that that was important. And then in the third month, they got around to the question of impeachment and asked, should we have it or not? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they said, yeah, because the powers of the president are so awesome, the people need to have some sort of check, particularly if the president's trying to cheat on an election. That was actually one of the things that motivated the impeachment clause. Mm-hmm. And so, 
you have that history and then you have a president like Trump who says, oh, no, I get to have all the awesome powers, but none of the guardrails or limits mm-hmm. like impeachment. And that combination is incredibly dangerous. And I'm hardened by the fact that the president is incompetent whenever he does anything. Mm. So he always gets caught and he blows it every time. So he's well, he admits cheat, to his but, to his corruption on the White House lawn on live TV like once exactly. a week. Right. So, I mean, you know, he's going to he's going to try some stuff, mm-hmm. but he's not going to execute it as well as a really nefarious, dangerous criminal president would. Um, so he's kind of an incompetent buffoon president. Um, mm. And so I think, you know, that's why I'm a little bit hopeful. Um, but right. you're absolutely right, Sophia. The question is, you're setting a precedent mm-hmm. and the next president may be a lot smarter than uh, Trump. Mm. And, you know, let's just say, do we really want, if you're a Republican, do you want a President Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren to have the kind of powers that they just voted this president should have? Uh, right. Boy, that's a, I mean, you know, you know that, that can be a pretty unappetizing proposition. Well, it's a grave mistake. And, and my hope is that whether it's Bernie, Elizabeth, Amy, whoever it is for us, my hope is that they very clearly roll back some of this and say, hey, we got to we got to re we got to reexamine what we're allowing in this country. We have to course correct for the mess that we made yeah. last term. Yeah. You, you've you said that Trump is emboldened to do worse if he's acquitted, which is looking more likely given what's happened today. How how much worse do you think it's going to get? Are, are there things that you sort of see coming down the pipeline if the acquittal happens based on the GOP's complicity in this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's starting already today. The president just announced uh, a bigger Muslim ban. Um, and that's something I'd spent a couple of years challenging. And we got versions one and two struck down by the mm. courts. But version three, which I argued in the Supreme Court, lost five to four. Then wow. the president was able to issue the Muslim ban in the revised version. And now he's trying to expand it. So that's just day one of this new reality. And I do think, as we were talking about before, we're going to see all sorts of stuff in the election arena, in the foreign government arena, and maybe most worrisome to me, the Justice Department. You know, there's a traditionally a wall so that you don't have political prosecutions at the Justice Department, mm-hmm. that you have, you avoid any sort of White House contacts with the prosecutors um, at the Justice Department because the law enforcement powers are just so. Uh, you know, extreme. You can do all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think this president doesn't give one whit about that. And he thinks the Justice Department is his and can be turned to go after any of his Mm -hmm. enemies. And so I'm very, very worried about what's going to happen to our Justice Department. I'm hearing all sorts of stuff from people at the Justice Department whom I used to work with, career officials and the like saying, I can't stomach this. I need to get out. Um, and I love the Justice Department. It's exactly what we started our conversation with, a mm. entity that's really devoted to this idea that justice is blind and you do the same thing. You treat a Republican defendant or target of an investigation the same way as a Democrat. You don't think they're different. And um, I think this president is wants to throw all of that out the window. Well, he wants to utilize departments and and in such a scary way, the Justice Department, almost as an extension of a of an organized crime family. It's like he he thinks the Justice Department is his personal Gestapo. Exactly. And it, exactly. 
it's frightening to me that that no matter how many people have sat this man down over the last three years and tried to explain to him the way the government works, the way the military works, the way the Justice Department works, he's not interested. No, that would require him to listen, to learn, to read, to think. And, you know, those aren't traits that he particularly values. Well... I wonder, because it does feel overwhelming, and I, and I will say I'm so grateful for the amount of you know, belief that you carry and the hope that you carry and, and your motivation, because your motivation reminds me to be motivated, so thank you. Uh, and I'm sure people at home are feeling the same. Do you think that all of this chaos, because it is chaos theory that they've been applying, right? You know, Steve Bannon, who helped Trump get elected, said, if you flood if you flood the world with shit, people will stop paying attention. It's a version mm-hmm. of that, I'm paraphrasing. But that was his idea, that if there was a dumpster fire every day, people would get overwhelmed and fatigued and they would stick their heads in the sand. Do you think people have stopped paying attention? And if they have, what do you say to them to get their attention again? Do you encourage them to focus on one thing really hard? Do you, mm-hmm. do you have some sort of like get back in there, motivational <laughs> speech for us. You know, what, what, what do we use to hold on? Yeah, no, I, I feel it. I, of course, go through it myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I fought really hard on Mueller and so on. And then that fizzled and I was demoralized. And I fought mm-hmm. so hard on the travel ban before that. Mm-hmm. And, and now uh, on this. Mm-hmm. But I will say, you know, you obviously take a little time. You rest up. Mm-hmm. You lick your wounds. But this is the battle of our lives coming up over the next few months. November is everything. It's a battle for the heart and soul of what America is. It's about whether we want to live under a constitution with limited government. It's about whether we want a clean environment and whether we want reproductive justice. And Mm -hmm. as a result, I don't care if you're tired. Get the hell out there, man. And, (laughs) uh, you know, I'm a lot older than your your average listener, and I'm going to get out there. So I want your listeners to get out there. And yeah. if they don't, we kind of deserve this. Right. We deserve a little of this ourselves because we weren't able to tell our story and have our voice heard right. and to stand up for our values. And we got complacent and we were on Instagram too much or whatever. And mm. Um, no more of that. We we can't right. do that. The stakes are everything. You mentioned Mueller and, and that fight. A lot of people believed the statement that Barr put out that said the Mueller report found no wrongdoing. And the Mueller report, in fact, found hundreds and hundreds of instances of wrongdoing on the part of the president. And again, the Trump administration tried to hide it and hide its findings from us. Can you walk listeners through, as a lawyer, what the Mueller report really said, even if it's a quick overview, because a lot of people are curious and there's a lot of roadblocks up to find the information. Right. Okay. So there are two parts of the Mueller investigation. Part one is did the Trump campaign collude or conspire with the Russians? And that's like things like when the president said during the campaign, Russia, if you're listening, give us the 30,000 emails. Mm -hmm. It's meeting the Russians at the Trump Tower, intelligence Mm -hmm. assets and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Look, you know, any normal political campaign, if you get dirt on your opponent from a foreign government, Mm -hmm. you like if someone calls and offers it, you say, hey, can I call you back? And then you go call the FBI. Um, But That's not what Trump did. They went and took the meetings and the like, so much so that Don Jr. even said, if it is what you say it is, I love it, particularly later in the summer. Uh So 
There's all sorts of stuff. Now, Mueller said that there was evidence, but not enough to bring a criminal case. Barr took that and spun it as that Mueller cleared the president. No. In fact, the very first page or first or second page of the Mueller report on that question says, if I could clear the president, I would, Mm. if the evidence showed that. That, of course, Barr never said anything about. He Mm -hmm. just hid that from the American people. And then the second part of the investigation was after Trump became president, did he obstruct justice? Did he fire the FBI director because he was looking into him? And did he do other things like with his White House counsel to try and prevent the investigation? Mm -hmm. And Mueller actually found 10 separate instances, Sophia, in which President Trump did that. Each of those, if he were anyone but the president, he'd be in jail for. Wow. But Mueller said, because you're the, the sitting president, I'm not allowed under a Justice Department opinion to indict you. Wow. Now, did Barr tell us any of that? Nope, not a word. Wow. He just pretended that Mueller cleared the president when actually what Mueller said is the president is not being indicted right now on a technicality because mm-hmm. he's a sitting president. But after he's president... All of those 10 instances, he can be indicted. And, you know, one of the other things that might motivate some of your listeners, if Donald Trump is not reelected, he can be indicted on day one of a new administration. And it's within the statute of limitations. And he will have Mm -hmm. effectively no defense. Um, You know, the report is as plain as day as to what he did. And so... Look, I never really wish that any, you know, jail is a horrible thing. Um, But this person who um, broke a lot of laws, he deserves a serious and real investigation. That's something. And and if if the report, if if Mueller's report is verified, then absolutely there should be criminal charges brought against him. So Mueller's report was not able to be used because he's a sitting president. And... Now, as we've discussed, so much of the miscarriage of justice makes, you know, Watergate look like child's play. What are some of the things about this impeachment trial that are that are real firsts? Like, what, what are some of the things that, that we really need to understand on the on the level of severity, which is accurate? <laughs> yeah. OK, so we don't have in this country a tradition of presidents going and trying to cheat in election campaigns. The one time it right. happened was Richard Nixon. And it led to his resignation. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an impeachment investigation, but it stopped because of that. So, you know, this is certainly the first time a president has been cleared after he's tried to cheat on a reelection. Because a reelection is Mm -hmm. kind of what our founders gave us is our cardinal right to stop the abuse of a government that we don't like. And that has been read out of the Constitution by some members of the Republican Senate. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two. We've never had a president who has stonewalled the House in an impeachment investigation, mm. not just, you know, you know, a wholesale stonewall, not a single witness, not a single document. Mm. Number three, we've never had a Senate trial. We've had 15 impeachment trials, I think. Every single one had witnesses in the Senate. Mm-hmm. This is the first one in which there were no witnesses. Wow. And indeed, they're all new witnesses, too. So you like... President Clinton had three witnesses in the Senate. None of them were in the House. Um, Johnson had 41 witnesses at his trial in 1868. 
And here, the president's lawyers, Trump's lawyers, had the audacity to say, oh, you're going to set a bad precedent because the House didn't call these people like Bolton, and now you want to call them in the Senate. No, the precedent is the reverse. Every single trial did that before. So they were just making specious and bad arguments. Oh, and number four, something that we just found out a few hours ago from the Bolton book, it turns out that the president's lead impeachment lawyer, Pat Mm -hmm. Cipollone, the White House counsel, was in the meetings with John Bolton and the president (gasps) in which Trump ordered the aid to be cut off and pressure Ukraine unless they got dirt on the Democrats. So the president's chief lawyer is compromised. That's like the most cardinal ethical issue as a lawyer, you know, is like if you're a witness, you can't be the lawyer as well. No, I mean, that's a horrendous Um, conflict of interest. Totally, totally. And yet that has now been revealed just as of a few hours ago. Wow. So take all those things together. Yeah, it's a pretty dark day for our democracy. But as I say, I don't want people to lose hope because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of counter story and a lot of stuff that is good that's happened. Right. And this story will all come out. Every part of it is going to come out and the American people are going to know. They're going to know what the president did and they're going to know what the Senate did in enabling and covering Mm -hmm. it up. Mm -hmm. And that's one of our biggest points to fight back is flipping the Senate. Exactly. One of the biggest. We have to remember that, that yes, of course, we have to fight like hell for the presidency, but we have an opportunity to restore order and hold the president in check by flipping the Senate. Totally. That's exciting, <laughs> which isn't the word I you thought I would. You don't sound excited. I want I, you to sound more excited. I mean, I know I, mean, I am. I'm just, I'm, I'm amused in a, in a way because I'm like, oh my God, it's so intense. But also I do feel inspired. I, I don't feel yeah. like giving up. I, I don't believe that the 200 plus years of this American experiment go away because of this horrid man. I just refuse. I refuse. Totally. Our country is stronger than that. You and I are stronger than that. Our friends, our, you know, our peers groups are, mm. are stronger than that. We're not going to let it happen. Mm. Can you tell us about your book? I, I want you know, people who are curious about this, the case and, and really what's happening and how the system works, I, I think would learn so much from it. But you'll do a better job talking about the book you wrote than I'll do talking about it having read it. <laughs> Well, it, you know, it's a 150-page book. It's mm-hmm. short, and it's designed to be read in an afternoon and just yep. provide everyone with a guide as to what impeachment's about, why it's in the Constitution, where it comes from, mm-hmm. all the past precedents in which it's been used. Yes. And then it's a guide to what Trump did. And I really try and be non-political about this and, and really try and present both sides and explain mm-hmm. why what the president did is such an affront to our democracy and to what America Mm -hmm. stands for. But I've tried to make it like a page turner, you know, like I don't actually read serious nonfiction. I'm sure you do, but I don't like I'm too tired at night. So I read like Dan Brown books and stuff like that. Listen, Dan Brown is great. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, I tried to make it like that. I tried to make it like, you know, in a more interesting book for people, um, particularly young people so that they can really kind of get a guide as to, what all of this controversy is about. Yes. Awesome. It's so good. And we're going to link it in the stories that come up with this episode so that people have a quick swipe up to get the book. And it's, 
it, it, it does really, you, you explain it in layman's terms in a way that, that both make this stuff feel understandable and make you realize how exciting it is to be part of a democracy with a functioning legal system. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we, we, you know, I won't say that it goes so far as to say we're lucky to be alive at this time, like the line in Hamilton, um, but we are witnessing history being made right now. Yes. And um, the first uh, steps have been cast and uh, the president has has won these early battles. But I don't think he's going to win this war. I don't think that he will remain president. I don't think, mm. I think the Senate will pay a huge price. I hope so. And I hope I everyone pays for this. The DNA, the DNA of our people is so much stronger than this. And um, there's a chance that because of this, we come out of this stronger and say to ourselves, we'll never do that again. We We flirted with, authoritarianism. It was, uh, you know, it, it was exciting for a moment, but no, let's go back to old and boring and milk toast. You know, you know, <sighs> God, you know, remember when Obama and Michelle were president and like the things we had to worry about were like tan suits and I things like that. I was just like going to say, people were like, what is he wearing? I'm like, give me back <laughs> the day. Dad, come home. The exactly. babysitter's weird. So you, as we mentioned earlier, you run one of the largest Supreme Court practices in the world. You occupy the role formerly held by now Chief Justice John Roberts. Do you see yourself sitting on that SCOTUS bench one day? No. Um, no? I'm definitely on the other side. Come on, um, I like want to yeah. root for you as no, like look, as, as, I mean, my, of course, as my like, peer group's RGB. <laughs> look, if you if you want to put me RBG, on there, I'm, I'm not going to turn it down. But... Um, but I, I decided a long time ago that it's real important to me to live my life um, mm. and, and fight for the things I believe. And um, that's that's my calling. And yeah. I'm so fortunate to do it on behalf of clients and the public interest. And yeah. so so that's, that's really where I see myself. Um, but, you know, mm. and it's a privilege. It's a privilege to fight for my clients. And mm-hmm. it's a privilege to mentor this group of 15 attorneys were the only group, only kind of Supreme Court group that's half women. So uh, cool. And um, it's such a joy to, to work with these incredible young people. It's the top 15 young lawyers in the country, as far as I'm concerned. And to be able to work with them is, is a real joy. So, yeah, there's like cool things about government service, but um, in a really good spot. That's so cool. Well... I got a question for you that I like to ask everybody. The podcast is called Work in Progress, and it's a phrase that always elicits a, a pretty immediate response when you hear it. And I'm curious, when I just said it to you, what comes to mind as a work in progress in your life? Well, in in my life, balance, you know, because <laughs> like, particularly after Trump, I don't have any. Yeah. Um, but when you know when you, when I think about that phrase in connection with your podcast, and I think what's really a work in progress, it's our American democracy, mm. and it's not something that yes, it's written down on a piece of paper, but as Madison said, you know that's just mere parchment. What mm. American democracy really is is it's conversations like this between you and me that are going on all over the country and energizing people to get out and fight for what they believe. Yeah. And that's the work in progress because we lost that for a little while. We got, we were so glad with the new iPhone and the new tw- whatever features on the Xbox that we didn't think about these big questions. Right. And 
We don't have that luxury anymore. We've got adversaries like Russia that are trying to tear us apart. We have ill forces in our society, racism and homophobia and sexism and the like that are trying to fan those flames even further. Yeah. And, you know, this is all a work in progress. It's a work that generally in the course of America has bent bent in the arc, uh, bent toward the arc of improvement, mm. but certainly not for the last uh, few years. And so mm. we got to pick that progress back up and fight for it. Well, I'm here. Anything you need. I'm sure there's plenty of people at home thinking the same. You let us know how we can show up and fight the good fight and we'll be right there with you. Awesome. Can't wait. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.